Well, we've been in this series we've been calling Road to the Cross, and today is Palm Sunday as we've been singing about, and Palm Sunday, if you're not really familiar with the Bible, Palm Sunday begins the greatest week in the history of the world, Holy Week, or Passion Week. And so Palm Sunday marks the day that Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey in front of 250, 300,000 people in the city of Jerusalem. They had all been gathered there because of the celebration of the Passover. And so he rides in on the donkey. The people are the people are recognizing who he is. They're recognizing the claims that his, his words and his actions and his character have made, that he is the Messiah. And people are singing Hosanna in the highest. And so that was Monday. And then, then the very next day, Jesus goes back into the city of Jerusalem and he goes to the temple. And this time, it's not quite as festive as he cleanses it. You know, because there's so much corruption within the temple and the administration of the temple and the buying and selling of animals for sacrifices, taking advantage of the poor and, and focusing on just pure bottom line profit. And so Jesus goes in and says, this, is, this place has become a, a den of robbers, if you will. And then Jesus does teaching on Tuesday where he takes his disciples up to the Mount of Olives and he gives them the Olivet Discourse. He shares with them about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and then his second coming. He does more teaching on Wednesday and then Thursday's kind of that quiet day where preparations for the Passover meal that he will celebrate one final time with the disciples and where he will institute the Lord's Supper for the very first time. And then on Good Friday, Jesus will be tried, he will be convicted, and he will be crucified, and he will die on the cross on that Good Friday. And then the week really ends with Jesus' resurrection and the tomb, uh, the, the stone in front of the tomb being rolled away. And the greatest week uh, in the history of the world, just an amazing thing. So what I want us to do today is we kind of think about the context that we're in today. I want us to go back to the passage that we read last Sunday because I want us to look at something we really didn't talk about last Sunday, and that is Jesus' last prayer on the cross, his, you know, his, uh, his prayer on the cross. And I want us to look at it because it has absolute significance for us today. Now let me give you a little bit of context to what we're looking at today as we've kind of been talking about. Jesus has been through two religious trials. He's been through three civil trials. And so the religious leaders have accused him of blasphemy and have convicted him of blasphemy. They brought in witnesses that their testimony didn't align with, you know, with the truth. And, and so they they, they convicted him, and then they knew that they were not allowed under Roman law to execute someone. So they had to get him before Pilate, and they had to come up with a charge that would stick with Pilate. And so they made up these charges that Jesus was inciting, you know, an insurrection against Roman authority. And Pilate and Herod tried Jesus. Three different trials, three different times, Pilate pronounces Jesus not guilty not guilty. There's no proof of what, you know, what the charges are against him. And because of Pilate's fear, his fear of the political leverage that the religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem had against him, he went ahead and he went ahead and, and allowed Jesus to be crucified just to kind of save his own political skin. 
And so he, he ordered his Roman soldiers to begin the process. They, they took a bag and put it over his, his face and began to strike him with their fists. They began to mock him and to make fun of him. They tied him to a, to a beam and they began to whip him, to flog him, to scourge him. They put a crown of thorns on his face, on his, on his head. And finally, they gave him a cross beam that he would carry from you know, where this kind of stuff happened to outside of the city of Jerusalem, the place of the skull. And it was there on the, on the hill, on the hill of Calvary, where they nailed Jesus' wrists and his feet to the crossbeams and then hung him between two criminals for all the world to see. And I don't know, maybe there were several hundred, if not a couple of thousand people gathered to just kind of watch this whole process. And they were particularly interested in how Jesus would respond that day. How would he handle this? They had seen him and heard him teach for for years. They saw the miracles that he did. They saw how he taught with authority. And they just wanted to see what what was going to happen. Something big's going down here. And and so he, he begins to muster enough energy to say some words. And I would only imagine that you know, people just kind of gathered around in anticipation of what he would say at that moment. And, you know, the Romans were really, really good at crucifying people. They had done thousands of people this way. And so this was a regular occurrence. And the crowds gathered to hear, you know, victim after victim say certain things on the cross. Say all manner of things that you could imagine as they were hanging, dying on the cross. So when Jesus begins to speak, you know, everybody kind of leans in. Everybody kind of quiets down from the mocking and the cursing that they've been shouting at him. They want to hear his perspective. You know, would he, would he call on his father to save him in that moment? Would he call curses down on the people that are doing this to him? You know, would he call the angels to bring judgment and to get him down? What would Jesus say at this moment? Everybody's interested. Well, I'm going to invite you. We're going to read Luke 23, verses 32 through 38. I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, let's stand as we hear Luke's account of what Jesus said. Luke records this. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that's called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. So in the middle of all of this pain and in the middle of all of this agony, in the middle of just trying to breathe and survive on the cross, Jesus gathers enough strength and enough power to to pray for the people. And he exclaims, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's the greatest prayer that has ever been prayed throughout all of human history, and it has huge significance for you and for me today. And I just want to share with you three reasons why that prayer is so huge, so significant for us. 
You see, it's in this prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, that Jesus, first of all, fulfills prophecy. That through this prayer, he fulfills prophecy. I want to show you a passage, a a prophetic passage from Isaiah chapter 53. The entire chapter is prophetic of the coming suffering servant that Isaiah writes about. But I want you to notice specifically, you know, verses 11 and 12. Isaiah writes this, out of anguish, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You notice that last sentence? He makes intercession. He prays for his transgressors. Now, as you kind of think about that, church, think about what is being said here, what is being prophesied Isaiah is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he is predicting that the Messiah will die and bear the sins of of many on his back and he will pray for the people who are crucifying him and that is exactly what we see Luke's account saying father forgive them for they know not what they do now church this is this is hugely significant and it's and it's it's very practically specific. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, the prophecies of Nostradamus, you know, recorded in the National Enquirer. We're not talking about that. We're talking about specific prophecies that, that foretold the coming of the Son of God into the world. And Isaiah is writing this saying that the Messiah will pray for the ones who are crucifying him. He will, he will pray for the ones who, who have wronged him. And what you have here is a very specific prophecy being fulfilled by Jesus the Messiah. I know you've heard the name Blaise Pascal. I I, I love to use him in sermon illustrations all the time because his life was so extraordinary. He lived in the 1600s. He was a mathematician and inventor. He's a physicist. And he became a Christian later on in life. And he devoted the rest of his life to sharing the gospel with his aristocratic friends in France. And he tried everything he could do to to help them to see the truth of the gospel, just like so many of you do every day. And he wrote a little book called The Pensees. And the Pensees are just a French word for thoughts. And they're just thoughts on why Christianity is true, recorded in a little book. And part of what he writes is one of the reasons why he believes that Christianity is true is because of all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And what he says in this book is he says, you know, it would, be, it would be very important if just one person wrote out one prophecy that came true. That would be huge. He says, but that's not what you have here. You don't have one person predicting one thing and it happening. What you have is Jesus fulfilling 300 prophecies written by several different men over the course of several hundred years. He said, that's on a whole nother level. Now think about it, church. You know, you could probably pick every now and then winning lottery numbers for the lottery, right? You could probably guess that. You, you could probably get a, a horoscope from the Psychic Friends Network, um, you know, that kind of lines up with, with that day. You know, kind of lines up with how the day went. 
you, you know, one of our local weather forecasters could get it right one day. I mean, that could, that could happen. But church, this is on a whole other level. I mean, you got those things here. This is here. And it doesn't, doesn't it make sense that if God is sending the, his son into the world, that he is going to help his people plan for it and think about it and foretell it. Doesn't that make sense that he would do that? And that's exactly what is happening here. So, so just a sampling of some of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, that he would be born in Bethlehem, number one. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, number two. That there would be a messenger who would go before him and who would pave the way, pointing people's attention to him. That he would be wounded and bruised for our transgressions. That he would be silent before his accusers, as Luke records. That he would suffer and be rejected. See, when you look at Jesus' life, he's the fulfillment of these prophecies. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And so when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is, this is what, what the prophet said he would do. But there's another reason why this prayer is so important. And that is, in that prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus models prayer for you and me. He really shows us how to pray, doesn't he? Now, I find it fascinating. You know, when Jesus began his ministry, he began it in prayer. He began his ministry 40 days in prayer. And then when he was choosing the disciples, he was choosing the 12 that he would invest in. He spent the entire night in prayer as his ministry was getting started. And what you have here is Jesus ending his very ministry praying. So he begins and ends his ministry bathed in prayer all the way through. And not only just praying, but he ends his ministry praying for his enemies. And I don't know about you, but that is very encouraging to me on a couple of different levels. First of all, he's praying for his enemies. He's praying for people that in my mind are never going to be believers. And I think there, there are people in your life and people in my life as we kind of think about who we're inviting for Easter weekend. You know, we always kind of think through and evaluate people. And there are just certain people in our life we think, oh, they will never become a Christian. They would never give their life to Christ. They would never want to come to church. And so what do we do? We write them off, don't we? Before we even have a conversation with them. And what Jesus is modeling for us in his prayer is he's praying for the very people that I think, man, they have no chance. Just let them go. Do you have people, in like, people like that in your life? I think secondly, the reason why this is so encouraging is because when you, when you kind of fast forward the story of what happens, especially in the early chapters of Acts, Peter is preaching just, just a few weeks after the resurrection, just a few months down the road. He's preaching on the day of Pentecost. He gives an invitation. 3,000 people respond to his invitation to receive the good news of Jesus Christ that day in the city of Jerusalem. You would have to bet that some of the same people that were mocking and cursing Jesus on that Good Friday were in that audience and accepted Christ just a few months later. Think about that. And so Jesus is praying for them, for them to experience, you know, the forgiveness that comes only through him. See, he would no longer be able to lay hands and heal the sick because his hands are nailed to the cross. He would no longer be able to go on, go on mission, you know, go on mission trips all over Israel 
sharing and teaching and preaching and not be able to do that. His feet are nailed to the cross. He's no longer be able to teach, you know, a sermon like the Sermon on the Mount. You know why? He can barely talk. But he can pray. He can pray. And that is exactly what he does. You know, the movie Hacksaw Ridge came out in, I think, 2015, 2016. It, it tells the story of, of a soldier named Desmond Doss. And uh, this is, he was a World War II. He's in the United States Army. Desmond Doss was a Christian. He was a sold-out Christian. He was also a pacifist. And he believed that it was wrong under any circumstances to take human life, to kill. And so he's now in the army, being trained as a soldier to kill. But, you know, his faith won't allow him to do that. And, you know, as the story goes, the army didn't know what to do with him. And the company of soldiers around him didn't like him and didn't trust him. They felt like he was... He was not being sincere. They felt like he was just a coward. And they felt like he was just a menace to their company. And they let him know about it. They persecuted him and made fun of him. They, you know, he would be caught praying by his, his barracks bunk, you know. And they would throw, you know, boots at him as he's kneeling in prayer. This is how they treated him. And it went on like that for a while. Finally, they got deployed. They got deployed to Okinawa in 1940, 1945. And their mission was to take Hacksaw Ridge, this huge, steep, steep cliff that they had to take. The Japanese are on the other side. They've got to get up it. And so Desmond Doss asked his superior, he said, let me just be a medic. Let me handle, you know, rescuing some of the soldiers. So, so the soldiers started up the climb and they, you know, the, the battle ensued and there were heavy casualties. Desmond Doss got on top as did many of his fellow soldiers, and they started taking casualties. And Desmond Doss crawls on his, on his knees and on his elbows, rescuing one soldier, pulling them to safety, pulling them to the cliff, wrapping a rope around them, and lowering them down so that they can get medical attention. He did it for 12 hours straight. You know how many people he saved? 75. 75. He won the Congressional Medal of Honor for that. And it's just ironic, the very people that persecuted him and made fun of were the very people he saved. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? They asked Desmond, how did you do that? He said, it was really simple. I just prayed, Jesus, help me save one more. Help me save one more. It's pretty amazing. I think that's what Jesus is praying on this. And it's a model prayer for you and for me. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Thirdly, I think the reason why this prayer is so significant is because it reveals our greatest need. This is our greatest need. This is it. And I think it's easy for us in our society to think that our greatest need as you know, a human race is we, we just need more education. We just need better politicians. We just need more money. Everything will take care of itself. Everything will be good. Is that what we really need? You know what the gospel says is our need is so much bigger than those things. That what we need is forgiveness. What we need is the grace of God. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, it was, it was catastrophic. It was, it was, it caused it, unbelievable damage. And since the beginning of creation, since the beginning of time, the human race has been at war with God. 
Because there's been something in us that doesn't want to submit to his, his commandments. There's something in us that says we want to be God. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, something happened, something dreadful happened. What happened is a curse came over all of, all of the universe, all of the world. And, and, and death and disease and destruction and suffering and toil became a part of every day, every minute of life here on earth. And so we live in this sin-cursed world. But something else happened. When Adam and Eve sinned, when they broke the commandment of God, it was as if you and I were there with them. It was as if we sinned, that we were, we were in Adam and we sinned with them. And what happened is what got passed on to the entire human race is the guilt of their sin, the shame of their sin, and the inclination to sin. And that creates a huge problem for you and me because what it means is we're, we're just bent towards doing our own thing and going our own way. And there's a theological term for this. It's called total depravity. And it is what characterizes humanity. And total depravity doesn't mean, you know, that humankind is, can't be good and they can't appreciate anything that's good and beautiful and true. It doesn't mean that. It just means this, that sin and selfishness has infiltrated every part of our life. Our reason, our will, our mind, our emotions, even our physical bodies. There is every single aspect of our life has been infected and corrupted with sin. J.I. Packer says it like this. Total depravity means not that at every point man is as bad as he could be, but that at no point is he as good as he should be. That's total depravity, and that's the human condition. That's the problem that we have. And that's at the heart of what Jesus is praying. You know, in Scripture, we see descriptors of this. We see indicators of this, where Paul writes to the Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of us have been alienated from God, that we've turned our back on God, that we are enemies of God, that we allowed the prince of darkness to blind our eyes to the goodness of God, that we've cherished the darkness instead of the light, that we've cherished sin instead of righteousness. This is, this is us. It's all of us. And it is, the, it is the greatest need that we have. I was reading People magazine. They did, a, they did a survey. It was half tongue-in-cheek and half, you know, serious. They did this thing called the Syndex. And they asked their readers to evaluate certain sins over others, to kind of score them out and see which sins are more serious than others. And so they, obviously, they said, you know, murder and like child abuse and spying on your own country were the worst sins that you could commit. And then on the bottom of the list, you know, the you know, sins that weren't that really that weren't that big of a deal. They they rated like uh, smoking and cussing and and then illegal videotaping, whatever that is, you know. So that that's that's how they rated it. And they said that they said that parking in handicapped spaces when you weren't handicapped is is a greater sin than divorce, and then cutting in line was a greater sin than living together before you're married. That really that's what the article said. And so they asked the people to score themselves and give a number on how many times they sinned in a month. And you know what the average person said? They said they, they sinned 
4.6 times per month. I'm not making it up. 4.6. How about per minute? How about that? That's more where I'm at. You know what I mean? Um, 4.6. I, I think... I think it really reveals something to us about how we, how we misperceive sin. Because we, we think that sin is just doing a few bad things. It's not. It's one big thing. Sin is not just certain actions that you do. There's a power in us that is sin. That's a whole lot bigger than just, you know, whatever. In fact, you see this in Romans where Paul makes this case in chapter 3 to the Romans. He says, what then? Are Jews any better off because they're God's chosen people? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. You see that? Are under sin. Some translations will translate it under the power of sin. Like sin is not just an action. It's a power that's within us, that it lives and resides within us. And then he goes on to quote you know, the Old Testament. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. So he describes sin as a power. This is our greatest need, is to be delivered from that sin. To be delivered from the power of it. And to be forgiven from it. Let, let, me, let me try to, I was trying to figure out a way to, to describe this in another way. But I thought I'd let Dorothy Sayers do the talking. Notice what she says. Sin is a deep interior dislocation at the very center of human personality. What she's saying is we're dislocated in here. And then W.H. Alden says this. Sin is the error bred in the bone. Like it's in the core of who we are. What they're describing is total depravity is what, what they're describing. And so we know this is true, right? And we know that the culture continually gives us this refrain that humankind is good. But you turn on the news and you see that contradicted day in and day out, don't we? And I think a more accurate way to see it would be to say that humankind, humanity is sinful but we're made in the image of God, therefore valuable to God. Does that make sense? That's more accurate to say. In, in other words, we're sinful, but yet we're loved by God anyway. What a miracle of his grace. And so what we see is some, our greatest need. You know, Charles Spurgeon talked about that even though we try to do what's right, left to ourselves, we always go wrong. And he said, you know, if you just, if you, if you, uh, you leave a child by himself or, uh, you know, a woman by herself or a tribe by themselves without teaching and instruction, they will go wrong every time. It's like he says, he uses the illustration that it'd be like if you just left a field by itself, what would happen? What would happen? Well, instead of producing a crop of, you know, an apple orchard or you know, grapes or whatever, it's just going to fill up with weeds, thorns, and thistles. It's going to grow wildly out of control and not produce, and not produce fruit. And this, 
this is our greatest need. Recognizing we're sinners in need of a Savior. Now, you know, when Jesus prays them, prays this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Think about what he's praying. They have just crucified the Son of God. They are calling curses down on the Son of God. Does that sound like the inherent goodness of humankind right there to you? They don't even know what they're doing is wrong. They don't even know that. That's how broken we are. That we're doing this to to the Son of God, and we don't even know that it's wrong. And so Jesus has to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what that tells me is this. It tells me that ignorance does not equal innocence. You see that? That's what Jesus is saying in this prayer. You know, ignorance does not equal innocence. If you got arrested for a crime and you went before the judge and they had all the proof against you. I mean, they had it. They had every T crossed and every I dotted. And you went before the judge and you said, he asked you how you were going to plead. And you're going to plead innocent by reason of ignorance. They're going to laugh you out of the courtroom. And the reason why is because ignorance is not an excuse. In the Old Testament, they had a series of sacrifices that covered the category sins of ignorance. Do you know why? Because sin, regardless, has to be atoned for. It has to be made right with God. And that is our greatest need. See, if we, if our greatest need was education, God would have sent a teacher. If our greatest need was, you know, for knowledge, God would have sent a scholar or a scientist. But our greatest need was for a savior, so he sent Jesus. That's our greatest need. Now, here's, that's the bad news. You guys doing okay? I got you through the bad news. Can we get to good news right now? That's the bad news. But, but what it does is it opens the door for the good news. It opens up the door for great joy. You know why? Because just as we were in Adam when he sinned and, you know, death and disease entered in the world, by grace through faith, we are also in the second Adam. That when Jesus died, we died with him. When he was buried, we were buried with him. When he rose, we were raised with him. That's what baptism points to. There was a first Adam, but praise be to God, there was a second Adam. Do you see that? And so death and disease and destruction entered the world through the first Adam, but righteousness, salvation, peace, and love enters the world through the second Adam. Through one man's you know, disobedience, all of the world became fallen, but through another man's obedience, all of the world can be saved. Isn't that amazing? I love how Paul says this in Romans 5, therefore is one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's the good news. I heard Rick Warren share the story of a friend of his. His name was Ron. His son was having a birthday party. And, and uh, he decided to take, Ron decided to take his son and um, six of his friends to the carnival, local carnival. And uh, so they were having a good old time. And, and Ron said he bought like a, this 
truckload of tickets, you know, they give to the kids as they went to ride to ride. And so they're not 30 minutes into, you know, their carnival rides and the kids would line up and they'd get on the ride and he'd hand them a ticket and then they'd, they'd get on, you know. And then 30 minutes into this, there's an eighth kid in line now, an eighth kid. And so the eighth kid's at the last line and he goes up to, to Ron and says, uh, yeah, hi, my name's Johnny. And uh, Ron looked at him and said, well, who are you, Johnny? And he said, I'm your son's new friend. Now, I love that illustration because you know why? The way that we can receive forgiveness is by being friends with Jesus. And that's really what Holy Week opens the door for. That's what Easter is all about. That's why Easter is such a big deal. Because what Easter basically does is it says it it is confirmation that God the Father has received the payment of the Son for the sins of the world. The debt has been paid in full. And Jesus' resurrection also demonstrates that we're no longer longer enslaved to the power of sin within us. But we've been set free. And so it doesn't mean that we're going to live a sinless life. But it does mean we have the power to obey and to follow Jesus the rest of our life. And then God will finally transform us. Church, Easter is a big deal. Because it also means not only we've been set free from sin, but all of creation will be made new. And there'll be no more curse, no more death, no more disease, no more destruction. That is really good news. That's what we're going to be celebrating and proclaiming next Sunday. Now, let me just apply this for a minute. As we think about this prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let's just apply it for a minute. And let me apply it this way, because you probably know where I'm going with this. Are you praying for the people that have hurt and wounded you? That's the question. Now, let me be clear. You're praying good things for them and not bad things, right? Um, Let me just be really clear on that. Oh, God, just give them hemorrhoids right now in Jesus' name, you know. Um, But here's, here's the question. Are you praying for them? Church, in a room of this size, as many people are in this room right now, you'd have to bet there are a significant number of people that have been hurt by a family member, a friend, a coworker, a spouse, and you are wounded. And you are angry and bitter and broken. And I guess the question I have is, are you praying for that person? Let me share with you what Jesus says in Luke 6, 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And the power of the gospel says in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Spirit, we can do that. Because the power of God is greater than the power of our hurt. And the power of our woundedness. And a lot of people today are living broken and bitter and angry because of something in the past. Their whole focus is backward pointing because they can't move on past what happened. And the heart of the gospel is this, that that Jesus, that that we, we, through the grace of God, can forgive others as as we have been forgiven. 
So if you think about all the ways that people have hurt you in your life and you multiply all of those waves times a thousand, it would, would never even come close to all the ways we've wronged and hurt Jesus. And yet he offers grace and mercy to us. So the question still remains. In your life, is there a damaged relationship? Wouldn't you like to see that relationship reconciled and restored? Wouldn't you like to see yourself freed from the poison of bitterness? It can happen, church. So you're like, well, how do I even do that? Well, I, let, me just, let me just say this. Forgiveness is a process, church. It is not an instantaneous kind of microwave kind of thing. It's, it's not just add water and everything's okay. I'm not saying that. I'm saying begin the process. What I'm saying is begin praying for them. What I'm saying is acknowledge to God that you've been hurt and wounded. What I'm asking is for you to pray and, and, and begin the process of just laying it before God and saying, God, please set me free from this. See, the good news of the gospel is Jesus understands what you've been through. He understands the abuse. He understands the betrayal. He understands the abandonment. He understands all of the wrong that you've been through. And so when you pray and ask for his help, he gets it. And he gives you the grace to begin that healing process. So church, first of all, has your debt been paid by receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior? That's the first one. And then secondly, are you willing to begin the process of healing? In just a minute, I want to I just close in prayer, but I want to give you an invitation today. Right after the service, we'll have members of our prayer team be right over there. They would love to just pray with you as you take a step. No matter how small that step is, you know, somebody that cares about you would love to just be able to pray with you through that. So take advantage of that and understand the greatest prayer in the history of the world. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we've, we've all been wounded. And Heavenly Father, we all realize that we've wounded you. Lord, we were in that crowd that day. We were with Adam and Eve that day. But praise be to God for the second Adam. Praise be to God that by grace through faith, we can be in you. We can be in your death and in your burial and in your resurrection. The resurrection we will celebrate every Sunday, but but next Sunday in particular. God, I pray that your spirit would bring freedom today. I pray that there would be men and women and students and children today that have been wounded, that would recognize that hurt and, and be truthful about it and be honest about it and would go to you about it. And I pray that you would begin a healing process for the wounds you will bring justice. We don't have to. 
you will do what's right. We just trust you. So God, may your spirit be glorified today. May you, may, may you work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.